Saints, we have the privilege this morning um, to have Dr. James Zolzal come and open God's Word for us. Uh, I got introduced to James in 2015, and ever since then, uh, not formally, but from a distance, I've been uh, his student, <laughs> learning from him, reading and anything that he writes and anything that he lectures on. So it, it truly is a great privilege and honor to have Dr. James Zolzal here to open God's Word for us. So, uh, Brother James, uh, would you come and open God's Word for us and, and feed us God's, God's Word? <clears throat> I'll ask you to remain standing as we read the Word of God together, as we have it in Psalm 16, and that will be our text this morning, Psalm 16, it's 11 verses, I'll read the entirety, I'll pray for the Lord's uh, illumination, and then ask you to be seated, and we'll consider His Word together. Psalm 16, this is the holy and the inspired, authoritative word of God. Let us give it our full attention. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God shall be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's ask the Lord to give us understanding as we consider his word this morning. Our God in heaven, we bless you and thank you for this word that you have given through your servant, David. We thank you for the consolation and hope uh, for our hearts that is found in it. We thank you, Lord, that you are our good. And Lord, we do confess readily with the psalmist that apart from you, we have no good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to turning. Lord, we pray that as we consider these words together this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we confess that worldly eyes cannot see the riches contained here, and we pray that you would remove the blinders and the scales from our eyes and that you would soften the hardness that may be in our hearts, that we would receive gladly these words, Lord, that we would understand the things written in them and that in faith we would commit ourselves to them. Lord, that we would derive our benefit from these words, even as the psalmist exemplifies praising you, even as we lie awake at night. Lord, even going to our grave, but in hope that that is not the end for us, knowing that at your right hand where Christ is seated, our pleasures evermore, even ours now and awaiting us to come in the life that follows. Teach us, instruct us by your Holy Spirit. Raise our hearts to praise and to adore you. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I'll ask you to be seated as we consider the word of God together. 
In the opening book of his Confessions, Augustine, a, a bishop in Hippo in the 4th and 5th century, offers a, a long prayer to God. In fact, his confessions are really one long, continuous prayer to God. He's constantly offering up his meditations to the Lord. And he says this in book one. And you can hear the echo of the psalmist's words. He says, what other refuge can there be except our God? You, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just. This is his confession to the Lord. In book four of his confessions, he contrasts his, his former life with the newfound joy in God's goodness. Augustine was converted late in life uh, while he was a, a tutor in the city of Milan uh, in adulthood. Uh, he heard the preaching of the Bishop Ambrose and was converted and baptized in that church. And he had spent uh, quite a bit of life sowing his wild oats, as we say, um, living for the world and for the flesh. And he says this in reflection upon his conversion in book four. I was hankering after honors, wealth and marriage. But you, he says to God, were laughing at me. Very bitter were the frustrations I endured in chasing my desires. But all the greater was your kindness and being less and less prepared to let anything other than yourself grow sweet to me. You freed my soul from the close clinging, sticky morass of death. Now let it cling to you. These are his words in reflection. That the Lord made the world as an end in itself bitter to him, so that God himself would be his end, his good. In our psalm, David certainly anticipates, under inspiration of the Spirit, these words of Augustine in later centuries. He declares his soul's attachment to God as his foremost good as well. In fact, this is a psalm that is full of declarations. Some songs are full of petitions. This psalm, interestingly, has only one petition. We'll consider that at the outset. The rest of the psalm is really a reflection of commitments that the psalmist makes in reflection upon God, who is his refuge. It's a song that makes an evaluation of God, and the evaluation he makes of God is this, that I have no good apart from you. If you want a title for the sermon, uh, we can just call it that, no good apart from God. This is David's judgment, and he fixes his heart on this one truth. For the Christian, this psalm exposes the abundant blessings that are ours in our triune God, and particularly as they are secured for us in the resurrection of his son. We'll come to that in verse 10. But I won't imagine that it's only believers who hear this psalm. Unbelievers can read it. Unbelievers may be sitting here and hearing a message about it today. And for the unbeliever, this psalm exposes the folly and the hopelessness of a life that seeks its ultimate and its chief good in anything beside God, that makes a God of God's own creation that seeks to finally find satisfaction and rest for its soul in that which is not God. Elsewhere in his confessions uh, near the beginning, Augustine says that our heart is restless until it rests in thee. I pray that in some respect, if you are not trusting Christ Jesus, that this psalm will make you restless today. And in fact, if you're not restless, it is one of my aims to make you restless, to make you discontent with a false contentment. And if you are trusting in Christ, that this would be uh, a refreshing 
reminder of all that we possess in God who is our good and in his son who loved us and gave himself for us. I want to take this theme of God's goodness introduced in verse 2 um, sort of as a, as a guiding theme as we contemplate this psalm together. And I want to first consider in the first four verses that God is an effusive good, an effusive good. Secondly, in verses 5 to 8, we'll consider that God is an encouraging good. And then thirdly, in verses 9 through 11, we'll consider that God is an everlasting good, an effusive good, an encouraging good, an everlasting good. Let's consider first, in the first four verses, that God is an effusive good. And I'll explain what I mean by this term, effusive. It's not one that we often use, uh, perhaps, but I think it's descriptive of what the psalmist describes here. The only request, or the only petition in the psalm, comes to us in the very first half of the first verse. And you can read it there with me. Preserve me, O God. And that's it. It's actually the first half of the first half of the first verse. The first quarter of that verse is the only request that he makes. Some psalms are full of requests and petitions. Some psalms make short work of the petitions and move on to reflection and contemplation and adoration. This is his one request. Preserve me, O God. It's general in character. Preserve me from what? And I think the answer is um, everything that would threaten my well-being. The, the, the request is the request is very wide and open-ended because the need is wide and open-ended. Preserve me from things that threaten my body and that threaten my soul, that threaten my well-being as a human. Preserve me, O oh God, from all of those things that would remove me from my good. And then he begins, uh, immediately after making his one request, he begins to explain um, that he has taken refuge in God. He says, for I take refuge in you. We are saying just now about hiding in Christ, who is that cleft in the rock, a song, or a, a song that was written by a minister who was caught in a severe thunderstorm and took refuge in a cleft in a rock. Uh, and then as he's lying there in this cleft in the rock, contemplates that Christ Jesus is in fact that cleft from life's storms in which he hides and finds his security and safety. God is a rock of refuge, a present help in trouble. And David, as we'll, is, is sort of um, implied here in a moment, we'll see, is in trouble. He doesn't tell us what the trouble is uh, in this psalm, uh, though he does seem to be in trouble. He's lying awake, sleepless in the middle of the night. We'll see that in a few verses. Um, David's in trouble, and he seeks his refuge in God. And he says, "For I take ref- preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I have invested my well-being in you. I am not finding my security. I am not holding to an anchor. I am not seeking a refuge, whatever biblical metaphor you like, with all of which we've sung this morning. I'm not taking my refuge somewhere outside of you. Verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, this is, an, this is an interesting statement. David is confessing his own insufficiency. He's not taking refuge in himself. He's not, as it were, muscling down uh, and taking care of himself. He's cast himself utterly upon the Lord. Uh, and then he says something that almost sounds redundant to our ears at the first half of verse 2. For I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. If you said to me, James, you are James, it would sound almost repetitive. But as he says it here, Uh, And you can see this in your English translation. He uses two distinct words for Lord in verse 2. The first one is that tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh. It's that special covenantal name that the Lord gave to Moses in Exodus 3. 
I said to Yahweh, I said, you, you can almost render it like this, I said to the I am, which is a name denoting God's self-sufficiency, denoting God's fullness of being, God's perfect plentitude of being and goodness. That's what that name signifies. I said to the I am, you are my, and the term he uses is Adonai. Now, we translate both of those as Lord, um, but if you look at your text, uh, perhaps the first one is in all capital letters, and then the second one is only a capital L, and then it follows, and that indicates that the first denotes the name Yahweh, the second denotes the name Adonai. The name Adonai uh, can also be rendered um, master, or if you were in the Old English, malord, something like this. It's a term of, it's a term of deference, um, and it can't even be a term of mastery. And what he's saying to Yahweh is this. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord in this sense that you are the one who dominates me. Now, that might sound somewhat imposing to be dominated uh, can sometimes carry uh, very negative and burdensome connotations to be dominated sounds like a, a kind of slavery uh, in scripture not all slavery is bad um, God has made us slaves to righteousness in Christ Jesus and it's a, it's a kind of ironic slavery that is liberation it's a slavery that is a freedom David has a master David has a Lord, David has one who exercises dominion over him. And he doesn't say this begrudgingly. He says this happily. What he's saying is, I said to Adonai, I said to Yahweh, you dominate me. You might think of this by way of analogy with romantic love. When you fall in love, some of you remember falling in love. Some of you still have that feeling. When you fall in love, you are dominated by the object of your love. You you think about that one day and night. You think about what you're going to say, how you're going to spend time together. You think about the loveliness of that one who has captured your fancy. You are dominated by it. You, 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 you eat and drink and sleep, and yet this abiding thought is, my beloved. David is dominated by the goodness of God. The goodness of God fills his thoughts. It fills his meditation. It is the thing, as we'll see in a few moments, that he sets continually before him. This is a man obsessed with that which is wholly worthy of his obsession. He says, I said to my, I said to I am, you dominate me. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. In Psalm 86, verse 11, David prays this way. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. This is really the concern. Unite my heart to fear your name. What he's saying is, don't let my heart be running after other goods. Don't let my heart be divided. A divided heart seeks goods in multiple places. A united heart invests itself wholly in one. David is saying here, effectively, my heart is united. My good is God, and he dominates me. I'm not dominated by this and that and the other. I'm dominated by one. My heart is taken with the love and the adoration and the assurance of the goodness of one. The God-satisfied soul is not a begrudging servant, but one who delights to have Yahweh as the master of his heart. David acknowledges this in the second half of verse 2. David says, I have no good besides you, or perhaps your translation says, uh, uh, I have no good apart from you. There is some question as to exactly what David means when he says, I have no good besides you. Is he speaking here in the sense of exclusivity? Um, there's nothing good except for God. 
um, or is he speaking here in the terms of um, source or in terms of effusiveness? There's nothing I have, there's no good that I have that isn't a good that I have from God, the, the source of all good. And I, I don't think we necessarily need to set these in opposition to each other. If David were speaking comparatively, you can think of uh, the words of our Lord to the rich young ruler when he comes and he calls him good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? And do you remember his words? He says, not as good except for God. Now, interestingly, Scripture will call other created things good in different contexts. Um, and if David were speaking here comparatively, um, compared to compared to the goodness that God is, all other all other good is comparatively as nothing. The, you know, as the nations are a drop in the bucket to the glory of God, they are but a speck of dust in the scales. They are as nothing compared to the greatness and to the glory of God. So the goodness of created goods is comparatively nothing to the goodness of God, which is, in fact, not a created good, but an uncreated, unbounded, effusive fount of goodness itself. He could be speaking that way, and I don't suggest that that's not in his mind, but I think he also has in his mind this notion of effusiveness, that whatever he has, he has from God, that he doesn't take for granted Let's just take the words of, of Paul in Acts 17.25, where Paul says that from him we receive life, breath, and do you know what he says in the third place? All things. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you have not received it? And David is here saying, I am not going to boast as though I have not received it. I have no good apart from you. Without God, I do not draw breath. I do not have life. I have indeed nothing. And so he's making an, he's, he's making, he's, in a certain sense, and we'll see this opened up in, a, in the next two verses more explicitly. In a certain sense, David is taking an inventory. He's making an evaluation. And his evaluation is this. Of all the good things in his life, and David has many good things in his life, of all the good things in his life, God isn't just one among the good things. You know, there's not um, Abigail, who was a lovely wife uh, and a good wife and a wise wife to David. There's not Abigail and, and Jonathan and then deliverance from Saul when he's chasing him. And then, you know, and then you sort of put into the mix. Oh, and God, too. Don't forget Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is not one among the goods. Yahweh is the good of goods. Yahweh is the good from which all goods, so that he can't see Abigail, his beloved wife, or Jonathan, who is to him as his own soul, or all the all the deliverances from those that would seek his life, whether it was Goliath on the field of battle, or Saul who was chasing him and trying to murder him for, for an extended period of time. He doesn't simply place God alongside the goods in his life. He sees no good in his life in which he does not see Yahweh. He draws from all the created goods and benefits, his contemplation of the Lord. David, interestingly, David had strongholds. David had refuges, so to speak, that were not Yahweh in this sense. Um, David, it's Second uh, Samuel speaks about David who takes refuge in the stronghold at the cave of Adullam as he's running from Saul. David knows in a very concrete, real way what it is to have a stronghold when someone is seeking your life and seeking to cut you off. And we're told that that stronghold there um, is some kind of fortification in a cave that protects him. And yet David, even in that stronghold at Adullam, David is not, as it were, drawing his eyes and his heart away from Yahweh. He sees Yahweh's hand even in providing him this stronghold. 
in providing him a friend in Jonathan, and providing him a victory in the valley of Elah over Goliath, so that when David says, I have no good beside you, you might step back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, David. I can actually name off the top of my head a half dozen good things that you have. How about killing the lion and bear when you were a child rather than being killed by them? Do you remember this? That's a good, that's a good thing. How about killing the, how about killing, uh, the Philistines when you went into battle against them or killing the Philistine Goliath when you went into the field against him armed with nothing but a sling and a rock? David, David, you're, you're being short-sighted here. You have many good things. Why do you say I have no good besides you? Are you forgetful of the goods that he gives? And I think what he's doing is he is contemplating the countless good benefits that fill his life. And in all of these, he is, as it were, seeing them as tokens pointing to the good that God is. The Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock says, God only is originally good, good of himself. All created goodness. I love this illustration. All created goodness, he says, is a rivulet from this fountain, but divine goodness hath no spring. What he says is this, all the good things that fill your life, these are but the ripples of good flowing down to you from God himself. But the goodness of God does not itself flow to God. The goodness of God flows to us, but goodness doesn't flow to God. God is boundless goodness itself. He's the fount of goodness. He's the good of all goods. He's the good by which every good, from which every good comes and by which every good is measured. And David sees the glory and the good of his God in the goods that fill his life. In a parallel passage, Psalm 73, verse 25, David says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on the earth. Now, David's hiding from Saul. He certainly desires to live instead of die. Um, David is eating the food in the tabernacle. He's certainly desiring to be filled rather than go hungry. I mean, David desires all sorts of earthly created goods, just like you do. I desire sleep. I desire food. I, how can he say, I desire nothing on the earth besides you? I think what he's saying is nothing, nothing on all of these things on the earth are but tokens of your goodness. And when I enjoy your creation and when I enjoy your provision, it is really you that I enjoy. I think we need to be careful here. What David is not proposing is a kind of um, world-loathing Christianity where we despise the good things that God has created. God has given us life, breath, and all things. Let us be careful not to despise his handiwork and the joy and the good that he lavishes on us through it. But let us also be careful not to make those things our gods. Let us see them as tokens of our God, as ripples coming down to us from the fountain of goodness that is our God. In Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, which we've which preface the words we read this morning in the law. The Lord says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we read this, our first commandment this morning. You shall have no gods before me. What David's effectively doing is responding to this first commandment, to have no gods before him, not to despise the goods that God gives, but in all of those goods to have his heart drawn to God so that he can say, beside you or apart from you, I have no good. The late... uh, Atheist uh, writer and author Christopher Hitchens once described the God of the Bible as a as a cosmic megalomaniac. You know, 
Love me, love me, love me. Have no good beside me. Have no gods apart from me. Worship nothing before me. And yet David understands, I think, what the late Hitchens did not, which is this. That when God commands us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when God commands us to have no gods before him, God is ineffectively commanding us to delight ourselves in that which is best for us. God is commanding us to love that which is our supreme and our highest good. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we might wonder where David is going with this in that he, re- in that he now contemplates two groups of people. Now, this is, I, I wanna, I'm treating this under the same heading here. I think the same thought is still controlling him. He says in verse 3, As for the saints of the holy ones who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And then he'll contrast that first group uh, with another group in verse 4. But first, just briefly with those in verse, uh, in verse 3. It might seem like David contemplates the goodness of God and he says, I have no good beside you. And then, as it were, he, he, his, his vision, as it were, comes from heaven down to earth. And he says, as for the holy ones who are in the earth, um, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. You might think to yourself, well, wait a minute, David. I thought all of your delight was in Yahweh. And now in verse 3, you're telling me that your delight is in the holy ones in the earth. Um, which is, and I, again, I don't think that the text is forcing a choice upon us. What David is effectively saying is, my heart is knit to and my love is for those who also say of God, beside you I have no good. In other words, he loves those who love God. His heart is knit to those who make the same evaluation, as it were, of God's goodness. I think of this even with regard to our, our human relations and friendships. Things that often draw us together or knit our hearts to other people is um, the pursuit of a common good or a good that we share in common. Now, some of these goods are indifferent. Um, you're, you, may, you may be a, a connoisseur of hot sauces. And so your heart is drawn to other people who like a, a fine hot sauce. Um, and then there are people who don't like hot sauce at all, and they're very um, Germanic and bland uh, in their palate, and uh, they don't share that love with you. And in that one pursuit of that one good, your heart is not drawn to them because you do not share a common evaluation of what is good, to, to use a silly illustration. What David is saying is this, but the holy ones who are in the earth, who are they? They are the ones who say exactly what David says. These are the ones who are in the strong, who are in the stronghold with you. These are the ones who are in that rock of refuge with you. As you look around in the stronghold, as you look around in the cleft of the rock, it's not just one. It's many who have taken refuge in Christ Jesus. All of those who say of God, you are my God, and who say of God, beside you I have no good. David says, those are the people I love. Listen to his words in Psalm 102. He says in verse 6, Psalm 102, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. If you love the Lord, and if you're going to prize the Lord as your effusive good, then your heart will be drawn to those who also prize him as their effusive good, as the good beside whom they have nothing. Interestingly, in our Psalm and in Psalm 102, David juxtaposes the group of the righteous in whom his soul delights. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight with another group, arguably a a larger group who do not prize God as their soul and supreme good. Listen again to the words of Psalm 102 and then we'll come back to verse four of our psalm. 
Psalm 102, verse 7, David says, He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. My counselors will not be those who make a false evaluation of God. Those who have a wrong view of God's goodness are not those from whom I will take counsel and to whom my heart will be knit. He doesn't say that he's not going to have anything to do with them. He doesn't say uh, that he's going to go out of the world, so to speak. Uh, He's going to be salt and light, but those are not going to be the companions of his heart. He goes on in Psalm 102. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked from the land so as to cut off from the city of Yahweh all those who do iniquity. Now, hold that in mind. Um, he He who is faithful will dwell before me. He who tells lies will not. Now come back over here to verse Three and four. As for the saints in the earth, they're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now, verse four, the sorrows of those who have bartered or your translation might say who have run after uh, another. And the idea is another God, a good besides God. Those who have traded away the goodness of God for some other pretense of goodness. He says, I shall not pour out their drink. Their their, uh, sorrows will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood or take their names upon my lips. What is David saying here, saying this, that my heart is knit to those whose hearts are knit to God. Make friends with those who love the Lord. Make your counselors those who know what true good is and who call God the good beside whom they have nothing. This is interesting. In verse four, uh, make a couple comments before we transition to our next point. He says the sorrows of those who have bartered or run after another will be multiplied. And the the idea, the imagery here is of an investment. And what these others have done, what these idolaters have done, those who pour out drink offerings, these are these are blood libations, sacrifices to idols. Uh, And he says you want to take their names. That is to say, the names of these false gods are not going to be the names that he praises and that he honors. So he's, he's swearing off idolatry here. But what? It, but look at his description of what these have done. What these have done is they have run after another god. They've they've traded away the true god for a false. And the the picture here is that of a kind of investment. Now I'm, as I would like to say, not licensed in the state of California to give you investment advice. But what I'm told. Um, by experts in investment is that you will want to diversify your investments. And so you might want to own some physical property, um, perhaps, and as you sort of grow your portfolio, if that's what you're doing, you might want to have some stocks and for a rainy day, perhaps some bonds, and then for a really rainy day, maybe some precious metals. And the idea is, wait a minute, why am I invested in gold and bonds and stocks and property? Why not just go all in on crypto you know, or something like this? Why not invest everything in one basket? You know, as we say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why? The bottom might fall out of the basket and the eggs will break. And so what you're doing is you're, you're sort of hedging against a potential loss by diversifying the investment of your wealth. Listen, I've I've been invested enough and lost enough in those investments to know that there's probably something to this advice. Diversification might have some worldly wisdom about it. 
And that might be fine for your money. Listen very carefully to this, and I don't need a license from California to advise you in this regard. If you do that with your soul, if you diversify the investment of your soul, you will, and this I guarantee you, receive a multiplied return on your investment. You will. I guarantee it. But it will not be a multiplied return of good. That's what he says. Beside, beside God, I have no good. These who invest their hearts in that which is not God are seeking a return, and ostensibly they are seeking a good return. They are running after other gods because they believe that those other gods will give them an increased return on their investment. I think that's, that's the idea. And they're delusional. They're delusional. This bargain, this damning bargain, bargain, began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God in the Garden until they didn't. Remember this. They traded away their exclusive devotion to Yahweh for a lie. They diversified the investment of their heart. They bartered for another. They ran after another. And then even as the language of the text says that their, their sorrow was multiplied to them, even listen to this language in Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your, chain, your pain in childbirth and pain you'll bring forth children. And man's pain was multiplied in toiling the ground, three score and seven, until the ground that he was to subdue, subdued him. You receive a return on your investment if you trade away God, but it will not be a return of good. It will be a return of sorrow upon sorrow. That's what David is saying. And he says, I will not make that trade. I will not enter into that bargain. I will not take my heart away from Yahweh and seek a false source of refuge. Folks, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry often will take a created good, and instead of letting it be a token of God's goodness, it makes that created good God. It commands your heart. And we invest our hearts in the creature rather than in the creator. Matthew Henry says, those that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. Invest yourself in one, and you will receive an increased return of good. Let's, conter- let's consider that then in the second place, that God is an encouraging good. David now begins to draw off some deep encouragement for himself and whatever his circumstance is. His circumstance seems to be one that's keeping him up at night and that's threatening him. He talks about lying awake on his bed in verses 7 and 8. But he, he, has, the t- he has the voice of one who is greatly encouraged and confident. The Christian refuses all false and hopeless portions and provisions. He won't take up the drink offerings of the idolater because he has come to regard God alone as the ultimate sufficient good for his soul. He won't even take up the names of God's competitors on his lips, the end of verse 4. And yet, interestingly, while he won't take up the names of God's false competitors, the idols, he does take up the name of Yahweh. He introduces that name in verse 2. But in verses 5 and 6, he uses the name Yahweh three times. It's almost like, I won't take up this name, but here's the name I will take up. I am. I am. I am. Yahweh. He fills his mouth with the name of his covenant God, and he sees God as his supreme good. 
Richard Alleen says this, He who thinks anything less than God will suffice does not understand the soul, and he who wants anything more than God does not understand God. Now listen to the psalmist in his reflection in verses 5 and 6, and then we'll consider 7 and 8 just after. He says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support, now he speaks to the Lord, you support my lot. Let's just take that first phrase. What he's saying is this. Those who run after another God will receive a multiplied return on their investment. They will receive, as it were, an inheritance, a a payout, a dividend for their investment. And the dividend will be a multiplication of, we already read it, sorrow. He says, but in contrast, for those that invest themselves wholly in God and his goodness, he says, you too will receive a return, a reward for your investment. You will receive um, a multiplication, so to speak, of return. And this is interesting. He doesn't say that, that the multiplication of return will be good things. This is a, it's, it's a little bit strange. He says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In other words, what do you get if you invest yourself in Yahweh? What do you get? And I, I know the temptation. You might say, well, uh, a mansion in glory, eternal life. These are created goods, by the way. Um, the scripture certainly assures us of. Um, to live where there is no more sickness and where every tear is wiped from your eye. Scripture certainly promises that. And you can, you can multiply the many good things that you get if you, tr- if you entrust yourself wholly to God and to his promises in Christ Jesus. But again, those are tokens. Those are rivlets. Those are the goods that come down to us from him. Listen to what David says. Yahweh. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. What do you get if you invest yourself in Yahweh? This is strange language. Yahweh. If you invest yourself, this is, this is different. God is not an investment broker. He's not, a, he's not a financial advisor. He's not saying, hey, if you invest with me, I'll make sure you get a good return. It would be a little strange if he went to a financial advisor and he said, if you invest with me, you know what you're going to get at the end? Me. <laughs> you know, that may be good news or bad news, depending on whether you like your advisor. Um, God says, if you invest in me, you know what you'll get at the end? Me. You see, because God isn't just a, a giver of good. He's the good he gives. So David says, I, you are my portion of my inheritance and, and my cup. And then he says, you support my lot. We'll return to that thought in a few moments. You support my lot. In other words, not only do you give me yourself as my good, but you ensure that I will indeed take possession of my good. In other words, you know, if you're if you're invested in a retirement fund, uh, you can't touch that money. It's sort of off limits until some you know later phase in your life, perhaps. Genesis 15:1, we have a precedent for this language. God says to Abraham, after these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Fear not, Abram." And then listen to what Yahweh says to Abram: "I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward." You know what your prize is if you trust God. This is, this is almost unthinkable language. God is your prize. God is your reward. What you get if you trust God is God. This is the heart of, this is the heart of the covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You can say of God, He is mine. Not that you are His Lord or His Master. Certainly not. God forbid. But 
He gives you himself as your inheritance, as your reward, as your prize. He, he doesn't just give you a good thing. He gives you goodness itself. I, I know this is taking us into the abstract, but I don't know how to go here otherwise. He doesn't just give you good things. He gives you goodness as such. Not created goods, the uncreated good, the good that is the reason for good. That's what he gives you when he gives you himself. Paul says it this way with regard to Christ in Philippians 3. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. One thing I want, one thing I desire, the Lord himself and his Christ. Now, this is an interesting uh, this is interesting language. He's using the language here of inheritance. He's using the language of receiving a return, receiving, a, a, as it were, a, a payout, if I can put it crassly, for your investment. Now, listen to how he how he frames this in verse six. It's highly it's highly illustrative and sort of poetic language. He says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. This is a man encouraged by the goodness of God. Now, what is he talking about in verse six? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful. He's using the language of the inheritance of a piece of property. That's the that's the, the background of this language. And when he says the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, you might imagine it like this. Suppose you were to receive a letter in the mail, and the letter said to you that you had, in fact, um, received a piece of property from a relative recently deceased. And perhaps it was a piece of property that you had not surveyed, you had not looked at before, and so you might take some time out of your life to go and visit this piece of property. And perhaps the executor of the will is out there and he's saying, well, this is the property that you've inherited. And you might say to the executor of the will um, something like this. Well, how much of this is mine? A few years ago, we were putting a fence around our backyard and my neighbor uh, <clears throat> asked me to, and before I put the fence in, to contact a surveyor. He didn't want me to put my fence on his property, understandably. And so we had to go and dig up the postmarks that are buried down in the ground and get a surveyor out who had to go and retrieve the records from the county office uh, to see exactly where exactly where the lines of my property lay. And uh, as it turned out, I owned half of my neighbor's hedge, (laughs) which we immediately trimmed back. The lines fell to me in pleasant places. It, it meant that my dog got a slightly larger backyard uh, as a result of that. Um, the lines fell in pleasant places. We owned a little more property than we realized that we owned. Well, David is saying this. He's used, now, he, now, listen, the imagery here is he receives God as his heritage. Imagine now you're out there receiving that property and you say to the executor, um, so where are the boundary markers of my, pro- of my inheritance? Where, where are the lines of my inheritance? Imagine he were to say to you this. What are you talking about? What do you mean the boundaries of your inheritance? It's not bounded. This is what David's getting after. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. How pleasant? How about this? I receive not a good thing. I receive he who is goodness itself. I receive an unbounded good. That's, a, that's his encouragement. I'm living in this life, and yes, 
Enemies are against me. I may lose my life. I may lose my kingdom. I mean, he very nearly does to his son Absalom. Um, David is a man in trouble, and yet he is a man in the middle of trouble, very encouraged. He contemplates his inheritance, and he knows a few things. God is his inheritance. God supports that inheritance, and that inheritance is boundless and, as he says, beautiful to him. Now, let's come back to the immediate in verse 7, where he describes this. He says, I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And there is there is an implication here that David is contemplating all this. He's meditating on all these things while he's laying awake on his bed, presumably in some sort of trouble. And again, we're not told there were lots of things in David's life that would warrant staying up late at night. Um, David, David was a man who knew who knew trouble. Whether this was the trouble of being chased by Saul or whether this this was the trouble of of one of his sons who kills another one of his sons or a son who later tries to take his kingdom from him. Um, David was a man who certainly knew trouble and who certainly knew sleepless nights. And yet he says, as he lies there in the night, that he will bless Yahweh who is counseled him. Now, the counsel he receives from Yahweh is interesting. He doesn't specify the counsel as counsel about how to escape Saul or counsel about how to how to put your children in order and fix your house. In fact, as it goes with David, um, his house never really gets put in order uh, in this life. Um, It's not it's not a how to you know, it's not your best life now kind of counsel. Right. It's not that kind of counsel. His when David dies. Uh, I mean, he, it, it, by the skin of his teeth, Solomon gets on the throne because he very nearly lost that throne to a, compet- to a competing brother. In other words, it's not that his life gets fixed. He's lying there in the middle of a life that is sort of shaken and upside down, and God counsels him. And the counsel that God gives is the counsel we've been contemplating. The counsel that God gives him is this. Um, I am your good. I am the source of all your goods. And I am good for you, not just now in this life, but I am good for you in this life and in the life to come. That's the counsel he gives David in the middle of trouble. And David blesses him for this counsel. As he contemplates God's goodness, even in the midst of a life of difficulty, he blesses God for the counsel that God has given him. And then he says in the second line of verse 7, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. In other words, um, <laughs> I'm contemplating these things and I'm thinking on these things even in the midst of my trouble. In other words, I'm not I'm not putting my troubles aside and thinking of God in the middle of my trouble. I'm crying out to God. I'm taking my refuge in him. I'm contemplating him. I'm receiving this counsel, not outside of my trouble, but right in the middle of my trouble. This is his confidence in the Lord. This is probably an hour of great temptation for David. When you were, I don't know if you've had these nights, I've had these nights, your mind isn't always right in the middle of the night. I don't know if you've woken in cold sweats and concern, anxiety, perhaps. You were tempted by that. It keeps you up uh, at night. Um, The middle of the night isn't always the best time for thinking. 8.30 8.30 in the morning with coffee after eight hours of sleep, that's a nice time for thinking. That's when your head is clear. That's when you see things as they are and you can take a more realist. The middle of the night is when you are tempted to despair. And you're up because you are 
threatened or disconsolate about something. This is when David might be tempted to um, contrive another strategy. You know, I've been trusting Yahweh all along, but, but what? But I'm about to lose my kingdom, or one of my sons just killed another one of my sons, um, or the king of Israel earlier in his life is chasing me and hunting me and trying to kill me. I don't know but what, but he's awake in the middle of the night. That we know. And he says that in the middle of the night, his mind instructs him. What he's not, he's not juxtaposing God's counsel in part, in part A to his own counsel in part B. His mind instructs him with the counsel Yahweh gives him. How does David get his mind right when his mind is tempted to go wrong? He puts before him, as he says in verse 8, the thought of God, the thought that God himself gave, the counsel that God gave. He says in verse 8, I have set Yahweh continually before me. He's not, not, not the way an idolater sets an idol before him. He's not confining Yahweh. He's not boxing him up, so to speak. He's not controlling Yahweh. What he's saying is that the contemplation of my heart gives primacy of place and authority to the Lord himself. My thoughts of God dictate and control my thinking even in the middle of trouble. David's thought and his study is toward the Lord. I would commend this to you as well. That when you're in trouble, when you're in trouble and when things aren't right and when things go wrong and when you make a decision that you might regret and you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, I w-, think about this. Yahweh has given himself to you as your good, as your eternal reward. That reward cannot be shaken because he supports your lot. Those who run after another... Their sorrows will be multiplied. Those who entrust themselves to the Lord, their joy will be multiplied. That's the thought that controls him. That's the thought that, as it were, stabilizes him. That's his center of gravity. That's his ballast in the middle of this storm. Our God is an encouraging good. An encouraging good. Finally, and thirdly, God is an everlasting good. God is an everlasting good. I want to consider this in verses 9 through 11. Because we might think to ourselves, so far so good. David's in trouble. God is his ever-present help in trouble. God is his refuge in the middle of a storm. And for now, that seems adequate. But what about what about the future? Do you think about the future? Think about the future. I think some of us, as we get older, think more about the future as, as our life in this world seems to have less of it than when we're young. The future is sort of closing in on us and closing down uh, the options, and we feel perhaps more and more the fleetingness of life. We might think to ourselves, well, God is good, and God is my good. But here's the question. How long, we might ask this, how long will the good times last? If I say this to you, if I, if I say the good times, probably automatically your mind goes back to some period of your life uh, that was peculiarly pleasant to you. And if I asked you, are these the good times? I imagine in a group this size that we would receive a variety of answers. For some of you, these are the good times. For, for others of you, these are the hardest times. Um, and so the question is this. Well, God is good. But is this goodness going to last, or is it like the goods of this world, sort of ephemeral and fleeting? Good times, and then not so good after that. Here's the question. Will the good that God is to me last forever? Listen, even if you make wonderful investments, 
And even if you live to old age and receive an increased and manifold return on your investments, eventually, you know, it's, it's what you, when you talk to my financial advisor, he says, how long do you plan to live? So I'm a Calvinist. I, you know, that's my days are numbered and they're in his hands. And he says, well, how long do you plan to live? And I, you know, why do you need to know this? Well, we need to know whether your return on your investment is going to last the duration of your life or whether you will, you know, as he says, run out of money. How long do you plan to live? Are you going to run out of money? And um, you can imagine someone who made very good investments and who could live to 120 and never run out of money, but eventually, eventually, that inheritance is removed from you. And, and it's always... it's. Eventually, it's always the same thing that takes you away from your inheritance. It doesn't so much take your inheritance away from you. It takes you away from it. It is death. It is death. And I would propose that arguably, David kind of comes to this contemplation about death here in the last few verses, that arguably whatever's keeping David up at night is potentially a mortal danger to him. And he had plenty of those. Verse 9. In the face of mortal danger, awake at night... But contemplating God, he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Now, listen to the next line. This is a little bit surprising. He says, my flesh also will dwell securely. How does he how does he know that? Do you see what I'm at? This is a strange thing to say. He's there awake at night, potentially mortal danger at his door. And he says, my flesh will dwell securely. Does he really know that Absalom is not going to kill him? Or of early in his life, that Saul is not going to kill him? Does he know that he's going to be delivered from whatever mortal danger is threatening him in this life? In fact, interestingly, we know that David knew that he would die. We know that David knew that he would die. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, after God gives him the promise of, of putting a son on his throne, and David and David trusts the Lord and he knows and it says in the text that he knew that God was speaking about a distant future. And it says this when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. That's what he says to David. Then I will raise up one of your descendants after you and he will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. So let's come back to David. Is David going to die? Yes. Does David know that for a fact before he does? Yes, because the Lord the Lord speaks to him of when he will lie down with his fathers. So come back to our text. How can David say my flesh will also dwell securely? Yes, it will dwell securely until it doesn't. (laughs) See, I'd be like me saying to you, your flesh will dwell securely until you die. So how is this consolation to David? David knew he was going to die. David knew this. I don't know that we know this. We don't know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. We live in a different time. Uh, We don't know whether we will be caught up together with him in the air and forego the grave uh, as others before us have gone through it. We don't have assurances of that. Barring the Lord's return, you will die. But David doesn't have that assurance. He is told by the Lord of when he will lie down and sleep with his fathers. He knows he's going to die. So how can he say my flesh will also dwell securely? How do I know that my inheritance is not going to be taken from me or inversely me from it? God is my good, 
my reward and my inheritance until when? This is interesting. Until never. Until never. That is to say, this is a goodness that is everlasting. Not just effusive and not just encouraging now, but also everlasting. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Now he begins to open it up for us. How does he know his flesh will dwell securely? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to shale. In the Old Testament, shale uh, sometimes means the place of the dam, but it can also just mean the nether world, the place of the dead. And so in the Old Testament, righteous and unrighteous, when they die, go to shale. That is the, that is the, the shadowy afterlife of the dead. Okay. Um, and yet David says, you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. I'm not going to rot in the grave, so to speak. Now, this is an interesting statement. How does David say this? How does David say this? In a very real sense, David assumes the voice of an individual, not himself. David is speaking in verse 10 as a prophet. In fact, in in the first Christian sermon ever, which is the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, Peter gives an exposition in part of this verse, verse 10. And then he says that David spoke these words, Acts 2, verse 30, as a prophet. Listen to these words from Peter in that Pentecost sermon. He says of David, first he says this. First, first he, he says to the people there at Pentecost, um, David couldn't have been talking about himself when he says my flesh will not undergo decay because, and do you remember Peter's argument? Because we have his tomb with us to this day. Now, quite literally, where, da- where Peter is preaching that sermon in Jerusalem and where David is buried in the Valley of the Kings is probably less than a 15-minute walk. Meaning, if you want to know whether David underwent decay, in under 15 minutes, you could be standing at his tomb, wherein lie his bones. They're not there now, but probably they were when Peter preached this sermon. And so he says... He says, brethren, Acts 2, 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, there are a lot of foreigners, a lot of Jews from distant lands in Jerusalem at the time. Probably some of them had just done the field trip tour and uh, gone by uh, David's tomb just recently. You know, when you go to a big city, a city of historic importance and you're from out of town, you you might want to kind of take a trip and see the sites. And if you're a Jew from a distant land coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost, one of the sites you might want to visit is the tomb of David. And so here's Peter preaching and he's, he's citing these words from David. He's citing these words from David to people who probably had just seen his tomb, maybe some of them that very day. It says, I assure, David's tomb is with us. Verse 30. So how does David say in Psalm 1, in Psalm 16, verse 10, my flesh, you will not abandon my soul to shield, my flesh will not undergo decay. Listen to this. And so Peter says, and so because he, that is David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his seed or his descendants upon the throne. In other words, this is what Peter's saying. When David writes these words in verse 10, he's thinking about the Messiah. He's thinking about the promised son that we just read about in, uh, in, the, in the second Samuel passage. He's thinking about the son. And, and David is, as a prophet, thinking about his own son who will be set upon a throne, never to be removed from a throne. David is going to be taken off the throne and buried. 
But a son is coming, and David knows that a son is coming of his own, who will be seated on his throne, but will never be taken down from it. That is to say, a son who will not undergo decay. And Peter says, so as a prophet, as a prophet, he knew that God had made this oath, sworn this oath to him. Verse 31, speaking of David, he looked ahead as a prophet and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And what he's, this is the wild part. He's saying that David knew this. Not that David knew all the particulars, the garden tomb and, and where Golgotha was in relation to the garden. Not, not the historic particulars that we have from the Gospels, but the truth that we have from the Gospels in its promissory form. David knew this. What is David's hope as he lies? This is beautiful. What is David's hope as he lies awake on his bed at night? Two things, if I, if I can say that, that are related. Um, that God is his good. And do you remember this in verse 5? We just read this, that God would support his lot. Now here's the question. How are you going to support my lot? Because um, I've, I've got something, I've got, I've got a problem. My problem is death. How are you going to support my lot? How are you going to ensure that I receive a beautiful inheritance and don't get, as it were, swept away by the tides of time in death and buried and lose that inheritance? You support my lot. Verse, now he's laying in bed. He's awake at night. He has mortal danger facing him, perhaps imminent death. He says his flesh will dwell securely. He speaks as a prophet about his son. In what is David's trust in verse 10? This is fascinating. It is, Peter says, in the resurrection of Christ. What does David, what consoles David as he lies in mortal danger? The resurrection of Christ from the dead. He is drawing his encouragement and his, his confidence. Because here's the question. God is your inheritance and your portion, and the portion of your inheritance. And then it says, you support my lot. But then there's a question. How does God support your lot? Your lot is eternal enjoyment of God. That's your lot. That's what's coming to you. The question is, how am I possibly going to get that? I've got a problem. We all know what it is. It's death. I mean, it doesn't matter how well invested and how wisely invested I am. Eventually, death will take me away from it. Right? At least as far as this life goes, um, I'm, I'm not planning an endless enjoyment of whatever I'm saving or planning for for the future. I'm enjoying, I'm hopeful. I may not even live to retirement. I may never enjoy any of it. Maybe my children will. Um, and if they do, it'll just be for a time. How do I enjoy God forever? How does God support my lot? This is how he supports your law, by raising Christ from the dead and thereby opening up the way of life, as he says in verse 11 of our psalm, for us. What is David's hope? David's hope is that he will receive an everlasting good through the resurrection of his own son. I've cited the words from Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul also preaches a sermon in Acts 13 in which he appeals to the same verse, Psalm 1610, as Peter does earlier. Now, the apostles were not um, too proud to uh, borrow from each other's sermons. Uh, In this case, it's not plagiarism. It's not plagiarism. It's the same spirit, and it's the same text. But this is Paul's sermon, not Peter's. Acts 13, verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up, that is Christ from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. And then he cites Isaiah 55, and then he cites Psalm 1610. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Psalm, that's Isaiah 55. Now, interestingly, I think that David 
as he's lying awake, writing this psalm perhaps, also believes that God will give him the sure blessings of David. What are the sure blessings of David? You ready for this? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the sure blessing of David. That's the seating of David's son upon a throne never to be taken down. And therefore he says in another psalm, the one we've just read, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And now Paul gives an exposition, like Peter did before him, of what David is thinking. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among the fathers and underwent decay. David cannot be referring to himself in verse 10. Peter says David as a prophet knew that he was not referring to himself, but was referring to his own son. Paul says David couldn't have been referring to himself because he was buried and underwent decay. But he whom God raised, he says, did not undergo decay. This is fascinating. What is David's hope? It's the gospel. It's in a promissory, and I will grant a kind of shadowy Old Testament way, but it's the gospel. David's hope and consolation is the resurrection of Christ from the dead, never to die again. Now, now the question, what does that have to do with David, though? Or with you, for that matter. I mean, so Jesus raised from the dead. Good for Jesus. And for you. And for you. And for David. Listen to this. Verse 11 of our, of our song. Coming into the final place. He says, I want to make sure I have it exactly right. You, speaking now of Yahweh, you will make known to me the path of life. How is the path of life made known to him? How is the path of life made known to him? (laughs) The resurrection of Jesus makes known the path of life. How do you live by trusting Christ and being raised up together with him? Listen to this language in 2 Timothy 1. It says that God's saving grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. David is anticipating the dawning of this light. You will make known to me the path of life. When will it be? When will the path of life be fully made known, fully opened up? It will be experienced at the last day, but it will be made known openly at the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And David says this. I know that even if I, this is his confidence, even if I go through the grave and am buried with my fathers, as he knows he's going to because Yahweh told him he's going to, even if I know this, I know that that is not the last chapter. I know that that is not the end. I know that I don't lose my lot. I don't lose my inheritance, which is God himself, when I die. In fact, Yahweh supports my lot by raising his own son from the dead and through his son opening the path of life for all who take refuge in him. You get this? For David, taking refuge in God, right? Is that what he says? I take refuge in you, verse 1, is taking refuge in Christ. I am not, interestingly, just notice this, saints, I am not drawing that from another text. I'm drawing that from this text with the help of the apostles' exposition, granted. But nevertheless, it's here. David trusts in God. And what does it look like to take refuge in God? This is what it looks like. To take refuge in Christ, crucified and raised. Entrust yourself to Christ, crucified and raised. That is the taking refuge in God. Finally, as a, as a coda, as a kind of 
cherry on top, if you will. Listen to this. In your presence, speaking now of Yahweh, is fullness of joy. There's an interesting kind of inversion going on here. In verse 8, he says, I have set Yahweh continually before me. That's here in this life. But he contemplates and he anticipates a day in which he will be set before Yahweh. And then listen to what he says in verse 8 as well. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken, speaking about this life, but listen to what he says in verse 11. In your, in your right hand, my right hand, verse 8, in this life, God is beside me, with me, to strengthen me for whatever he calls me to in this life. But this is not the end. And after this life, it will be his right. It won't be him at my right hand. It will be Christ at his right hand. That is my joy. Again, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasure. Listen to this language carefully. Our pleasures, he doesn't say for a while. He doesn't say until you're 90 and the money runs out. Or he says forever, forever. In your right hand are pleasures evermore. Seated at the right hand of God in glory is none other than the resurrected Christ who has overcome the grave for us. And in raising Christ from the dead, God thereby supports our lot, ensures to us and guarantees to us the enjoyment of him as our good for eternity. Our response to this is to forsake all false refuge, to believe the gospel of Christ Jesus, and to take that as our consolation for this life and our hope for the next. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we bless you and thank you for giving your own son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who obeyed even unto death and who was raised the third day, according to the scripture, who is even now seated at your right hand and soon to come in glorious return. We bless you and thank you that he has made known to us the path of life, that he has opened up that path, that even if we face the grave, Lord, we know that the grave will not take us away from you, that even death, even death, as the Apostle Paul says, cannot separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Christ's obedience unto death. We thank you for his glorious resurrection. We thank you for the hope that is ours in him. Lord, forgive us for despairing of these things. Forget us, forgive us for not setting you continually before us. Forgive us for not contemplating you and, and being counseled with these words of your counsel. Lord, we pray that you would renew to us the joy of your salvation through your Holy Spirit, instructing us about your son, Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.